Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. A few years ago, my beloved Honda Accord died. I'd had it since my sophomore year of college, and it was the first major purchase I ever made. That car took me from college through three jobs, on countless road trips, and ultimately on the cross-country move that brought me to California. When her transmission finally gave out, broken like so many other components inside her, I had to call it. The day the tow truck hauled her away, I sobbed on the sidewalk. I was heartbroken. But then we got an electric car, a little Volkswagen e-golf. And nothing can quite heal heartbreak like never buying gas again. I joined the ever-growing throng of electric cars on California roads, hoping to be part of the solution to our climate crisis, or at least a step in the right direction, and also hoping that driving electric could help clean up our air. But now I'm a few years in, and a question always gnaws at me when I unplug my car from the grid, which is not 100% clean. Is this really making a difference? I'm not the only one wondering. This week is a lightning round episode, which means we'll tackle a few of the questions that you've sent in. First, we'll look at what impact electric cars are having on our local air quality. And then we're heading to Portugal to learn about a bridge in Lisbon that looks a lot like the Golden Gate Bridge. What gives? That's all just ahead on Bay Curious. I'm Olivia Allen Price. Support for Bay Curious comes from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Committed to brewing things the right way since 1980, because when you're a family-run brewery, there's no other way to do it. Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Still family-owned, operated, and argued over. And be sure to stay tuned through the end of the show so you can play our monthly trivia game for a chance to win some cool prizes. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest, and I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. Reporter Pauline Barloni is here to help us tackle our first question this week about electric vehicles and air quality. 
Hey, Pauline. Hey, Olivia. So this question comes from Scott Mitchell, who lives in San Carlos. What else do we know about Scott? Last October, he got his first electric vehicle, and he was excited, not just because he got a shiny new car, but he felt like he was now part of a bigger social transformation. Seeing all of the new EVs show up in the Bay Area on the roads, and for me, I equate it to when we switched from horse-drawn carriages to internal combustion engine cars. It's that big of a revolution, and it's happening. You can see it now. But simultaneously, Mitchell, an outdoorsy kind of guy, says he regularly gets grossed out looking at the air quality on hot summer days. He runs this one trail on Rancho San Antonio near Los Altos, and he says the view from the top can be brown and smoggy. So you're running uphill for like 45 minutes, and you get to the very top of the ridge. And then you turn around, and you know, you're thinking you'll see the skyline of San Jose. Instead, you see this smudgy view of the city that's kind of blurry and and just looks gross. So here's his question. Mitchell wanted to know just how quickly California has absorbed these zero-emission cars and if it's significant enough to make a tangible difference in air quality. We should take some pride in that and celebrate it if we're doing good. Okay, so what'd you find out? There's no question there's been exponential growth in fossil fuel-free cars. In 2010, there were fewer than 800 zero-emission consumer vehicles on California roads. And by the end of last year, that number shot up to more than 1.1 million. And that's not even counting gasoline hybrid cars. Not surprisingly, the counties with the highest number of zero-emission cars are the more urban ones. Los Angeles County has the most, then Orange County, and then the others in the top five are San Diego and the Bay Area counties of Santa Clara and Alameda. There are about 29 million cars total on California roads right now. So 1.1 million zero emission vehicles, that's only a fraction of total cars. Is that enough to clean up the air? It's a good question. I took it to the people who could answer it best, the scientists at the California Air Resources Board, or CARB, the state agency which tracks this stuff. From a big picture perspective, yes. That's Michael Benjamin. He's the chief of air quality planning and science at CARB. The sale of electric vehicles in California, which is increasing, is contributing to improvements in air quality that we're seeing. Over the past 20 years, the air quality in the Bay Area and statewide has improved. Benjamin says the improvements are in two main kinds of pollution, ozone and particulate matter. So ozone is basically the gas pollution that creates smog, and small particle pollution comes from dust and soot and smoke and the like. Got it. When it comes to how much zero-emission cars have contributed to those air improvements— CARB says it's hard to quantify, but in the Bay Area, it could be about 3 to 4 percent, numbers that are sure to grow as more people phase out combustion engines. But Benjamin reminded us that there are hundreds of sources of pollution, things like lawnmowers, factories, and trucks, and they're also much cleaner than they used to be. So zero-emission cars are one piece of a larger air quality puzzle. If you ask people in Southern California who have lived there for 20 or 30 years or longer, could you see the mountains 20 years ago? The answer would be no. Now, it's very common to see the mountains 
And that's a really good indicator of air pollution. And on average, the improvements in the Bay Area have been more significant than in the state as a whole. In the year 2000 in the Bay Area, there were 29 days where particle pollution exceeded standards. In 2021, there were just two days. I'm actually pretty surprised to hear all this. When I think about air quality here, I can't help but flash back to the orange skies day in 2020 when the wildfire smoke was so bad it turned the skies orange and even being inside was dangerous. As usual with science, air quality is complex and there's a lot of variability year to year, especially recently with big wildfires. So, for example, in 2020 in the Bay Area, there were 25 days where particle pollution exceeded standards, which, according to CARB, was the worst wildfire year in California history. Those levels put us right back to the pollution we were seeing 20 years ago. And the air we breathe on a particular day is also very much related to where we are in space. Like, are we next to a highway? Are we in a park? And the air quality is also related to meteorology, like wind, rain, sunlight, not just the sources of pollution, like car exhaust. That makes sense. So to Scott Mitchell's question, should we be celebrating? I asked Michael Benjamin this, if he and his colleagues were celebrating, and his answer was very cautious. There are definitely things that we celebrate. We are very happy with the improvements that we've seen over time in regional air pollution. But our job is only half done. He says that there's still a lot to be done to address the inequity in the air people experience on a neighborhood level, like how people living near freeways or refineries have poor air quality than people elsewhere. And he says the wildfires of recent years really put us in danger of reversing the air quality improvements we've made in the past couple decades. He says wildfires have been getting bigger and more frequent, and it looks like that will continue. Dang. Well, I thought we were going to have some good news here. I'd say the glass is both half full and half empty, maybe. Thanks, Pauline. Sure thing. We got this next question from Victoria Turner, who lives in San Francisco and is a student at UCSF. Her question actually involves the capital of Portugal. Why is there a bridge in Lisbon that looks like a twin of the Golden Gate Bridge? It has a similar color and style, and I'm just wondering, what's that connection? Here to answer Victoria's question is Anna Vignet, a social video producer for KQED News. Hey, Anna. Hi, Olivia. So I looked into this question, and she's talking about the Ponte 25 de Abril Bridge over the Tagus River in Lisbon, Portugal. And it does look similar to the Golden Gate. I actually went to Lisbon last summer, and the whole city is really similar to SF, with hills, cable cars, really colorful houses, beautiful views. My friend who's also born and raised in San Francisco couldn't stop calling it the fake Golden Gate. The fake Golden Gate. I love that. I spoke to Bart Ney, Chief of Public Affairs for Caltrans District 4, and he told me about the similarities between the two. For starters... Both of those bridges hosted James Bond movies. An avalanche of action. They were both locations for James Bond. 007. 
The Lisbon Bridge was in Her Majesty's Secret Service from 1969. And The Golden Gate was a location for a 1985 James Bond movie with Roger Moore. They're suspension bridges, of course, but they're both painted international orange. It's a very uncommon color. It is the Golden Gate Bridge's color. So just having that catenary shape and being painted the same color, I think, is why people connect the two. So did they copy our bridge or did we copy theirs? Well, the Golden Gate was built first. It was completed in 1937, while the Lisbon Bridge was completed in 1966, almost 30 years later. It was actually first named the Salazar Bridge after Portugal's prime minister and dictator at that time. But then a revolution overthrew the government in 1974, and the bridge name was changed to the new independence date, Ponte 25 de Abril. Both of these are suspension bridges built in earthquake country, but when you really compare them side-by-side structurally, they're pretty different. It's really only the color and that they're both suspension bridges that unites them. Let's talk more about that color. People often just call it red, but technically the Golden Gate is international orange, as Bart told us. How do these bridges end up with that specific color? It's actually a cool story. When the steel for the Golden Gate was originally constructed, it was made with a coat of red lead primer. And the consulting architect, Irving F. Morrow, took inspiration from that red and how well it interacted with the colors of the surrounding hills. Turns out, Every day on his commute to the construction site, he would look up and see the bridge all red uh, and really liked it, which led him to choose international orange for the final color. He was weighing whether the bridge should be as inconspicuous as possible or whether its color should call attention to it as a feature in the landscape, and he chose the latter. I haven't been able to find out why the Lisbon Bridge also picked international orange other than it's a color commonly used to prevent aircrafts from crashing into things and speculation that it matches the orange rooftops of Lisbon. There's probably structurally and architecturally a better comparison with the Lisbon Bridge and another bridge that we have in the Bay Area. And that's the Bay Bridge. Both the Oakland Bay Bridge and the Lisbon Bridge were built by American Bridge Company. The structure mirrors the Bay Bridge in the cross supports that you see in the towers to keep it strong. The Golden Gate actually has got beams that run across it. Both of the Bay Bridge and the Lisbon Bridge have have crosses. And they also both have dual decks. Lisbon added a lower deck in 1999 that carries 157 trains across it every day. That's a ton of weight. Bart said that when the eastern span of the Bay Bridge needed to be replaced, it was important to work with American Bridge Company again because of their experience adding that lower deck to the Lisbon Bridge without having to close the bridge to traffic. Bridges are very special for the communities that they serve, not just getting people around, which is their primary function, but in their identity. They make it possible for us to move goods and services, get where we need to go. So it makes sense that people would connect the two bridges. I think just about any bridge as compared to the Golden Gate. It's one of the most beautiful bridges on the planet Earth. It's arguably one of the few times man has improved on nature. Thanks, Anna. You're welcome, Olivia. You can check out the differences between the Golden Gate Bridge and the Ponte 25 de Abril for yourself. Anna produced a video for the KQED News TikTok and Instagram pages. We're at KQED News both places. 
The Bay Curious Book Tour continues tonight at Bookshop West Portal in San Francisco. I'll be there at 7 p.m. talking about how the Bay Curious Book came to be, telling some fascinating stories, if I do say so myself, and quizzing audience members on Bay Area trivia. Then on Sunday, June 4th, I'll be at the Napa County Library with the Napa Book Mine and KQD Forum's Mina Kim, doing much of the same. I hope you'll come out and say hello. Find details at kqed.org slash baycuriousbook. Bay Curious is made at member-supported KQED in San Francisco. This episode was produced by Amanda Font, Pauline Bartoloni, Christopher Beal, Brendan Willard, Jim Bennett, and me, Olivia Allen-Price. It's a new month, which means a new trivia game. Stay tuned to play. Hi, Bay Curious listeners. Are you ready to play May's trivia game? Every month, we read a question here at the end of our episode. You can give us your answers over at our website, kqed.org slash baycurious, or just click the link in the episode description. Out of the correct answers, we'll randomly choose one lucky winner to receive a cool prize package with Bay Curious swag and Sierra Nevada goodies. Okay, our question for the month is, the world's longest-running pillow-fighting contest was held from 1966 to 2006 in what Bay Area town? Our trivia quiz is made possible by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Good luck! Hey there, it's Olivia Allen Price, host of Bay Curious, the podcast. KQED Podcasts wants to thank listeners like you, whose support makes this podcast possible. If you want to help us continue to make great content, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. And thanks.